Welcome to the new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live. On WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Because this very exciting gala concert fell just before uh, the holidays, December 17th, we very much wanted to create a concert that would be extremely festive in feeling. So preceding the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto, we wanted to present a whole group of fabulous, bubbly, exciting, holiday spirit kinds of pieces. So we began our concert with perhaps the most famous kind of New Year's Day related piece of all times. This is Johann Strauss Jr.'s Fledermaus Overture. As I'm sure you know, uh, Die Fledermaus was one of Strauss's most famous and celebrated operettas. Strauss, of course, became famous uh, as a composer of waltzes and as a performer, as a great violinist, uh, leading his waltz orchestra, as well as writing polkas and various other pieces for dancing. But he also, all that while that he was writing waltzes and polkas and other dance pieces, was writing operettas, light operas, for his very uh, interested and excited Viennese audience. This is actually one of Strauss's earlier operettas. It's not one of his last pieces. It comes kind of from the middle of his career, his very prolific career from uh, 1874, right when he was in the sort of full flower of his fame and success. Strauss Jr. was very lucky in that his entire career, he was a a huge celebrity, unlike other composers, one of whom we'll be speaking about shortly. uh, He really never had a a decline in his lifetime where he was neglected or or considered something of a has-been. He was a a huge culture figure, both as performer and as composer. Uh, This work, Deflatermaus, The Bat, as it's uh, loosely translated, is a sort of funny, charming, holiday-related, in that everybody gets locked up in jail on New Year's Eve, piece about mistaken identities and cheating on spouses and all the things that Viennese people of the time just loved to think about. Bubbly, exciting, brilliant music filled with lots of great waltz tunes. And of course, the overture is itself a potpourri of the hit tunes from the show that's about to unfold. It is actually, interestingly, uh, in addition to being one of my favorite pieces, an extremely difficult piece to play because the characters sort of appear in the overture or their music appears in the overture in incredibly quick succession. And so uh, the orchestra and the conductor have to convey these very different characters as well as very different emotions in a sort of uh, lightning blitz, uh, split-second changeover type of way. Uh, So it, it requires us to be extremely flexible and extremely expressive as well. Especially because, as you probably know, the Viennese waltz is its own very special kind of inflected dance. It's not like other waltzes in that uh, if you go to Vienna and hear the Vienna Philharmonic, for example, or one of the great Viennese waltz ensembles play, there's this little bit of sort of anticipating the second beat of each 3-4 bar and uh, holding back. The, the third beat. So instead of a one, two, three, one, two, three, you get one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, 
three, but it's very hard to do that in a natural way without it sounding artificial or too much. Uh, it's just the slightest, most delicate inflection that gives the waltz its very uh, Viennese characteristic. So here now, uh, to open our program, an incredible overture from 1874 by Johann Strauss Jr. This is the overture to his operetta Die Fledermaus. The Albany Symphony is conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was Johann Strauss Jr.'s Die Fledermaus Overture, the Albany Symphony played, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Next on our program's first half, I thought it would be nice to do a, a lovely French piece from exactly the same period. That work was written in 1874. This work comes from 1872, two years earlier, by a composer who, unlike Strauss, did not uh, see a lot of fame and fortune in his very brief life. Georges Bizet, I think, only lived to be 37 years old. And, of course, the legend is told that his last great work, his major opera, Carmen, was something of a disappointment, and uh, he didn't live to realize that it would be a great success or that it would be in essence, the most played and talked about opera of its age. That's not entirely true. I was reading recently that, uh, in fact, the opera was pretty successful and was actually scheduled for the following season, which new operas seldom were, uh, and that it received a number of performances that were fairly well attended. So I think the the legend is not entirely true that Bizet considered himself a failure and died of heartbreak, but uh, it certainly is true that he had no way of knowing that uh, he and his opera would gain true immortality in the annals of music history. This work that we're about to play three selections from, La Lisienne, is a, a, a set of pieces that were incidental music to a play, The Girl from Arles, and uh, he was commissioned to write this piece by the Opera Comique, by the, the light opera, which also put on stage presentations. And uh, this is a few years now before Carmen. And this really was one of his most successful pieces. The, the play didn't do so well, and the initial reviews were not so great. But shortly thereafter, Bizet fashioned a suite of the best pieces from the incidental music to this play. And uh, that work really kind of took Europe by storm and was played a great deal all over the place. Uh, so we've selected three short pieces from La Lisienne. Uh, and we've sh- selected La Lisienne and these pieces because actually uh, much of the music of La Lisienne is based on an ancient Noel or a couple of Noels, uh, Chris- uh, French Christmas carols. And actually at the end, when we uh, play the unbelievably overwhelming finale of, uh, of this incidental music, you hear two ancient French Christmas carols combined uh, in a sort of stunning finish. So the first piece we'll play is the Carillon or Carillon. It's it's a depiction of bells, and the French horns begin it with these wonderful bell-like accented notes, and it's got a beautiful, very uh, expressive middle section, which features a, a a very unusual instrument at that time in the 1870s, an instrument called the saxophone, which had only recently been invented. It's a solo saxophone, and uh, so it's quite a unique sound, and I'm sure in in the 1870s it was considered a startling sound since the saxophone was a a virtually unknown instrument at that time, Adolf Sax having only recently invented it. Uh, And then uh, that's the first movement, and then the the bell-like music comes back after the beautiful, expressive middle section. The second piece is a short little adagietto, a little slow movement for the strings, and that's followed by this triumphant combining of two wonderful ancient Christmas carols, uh, the Ferrandol. So here now, three movements from Georges Bizet's incidental music to the play La Lisienne, the Girl of Arles. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. Those were three selections from Georges Bizet's La Lisienne, The Girl from Arles. They were played by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. 
To close our first half,、uh, we actually decided to、uh, take quite a bit of a departure from the 1870s, where we've spent the first part of the first half of our program. We wanted to do something that had to do with Christmas and the Christmas season, and it was actually talked about around the office since we knew that we would be closing the program with the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto of perhaps doing an act or a scene from the Nutcracker, pure, purely for orchestra without dancers,、uh, since the music is so glorious. And when one goes to see the ballet, one Normally, hears the music sort of in the context of the dance, and when one just focuses on the music, it's quite incredible. It's also incredible when you see it with dance as well. But、uh, I thought that was kind of probably not that important a thing to do, since there are so many wonderful performances of Nutcracker all over our region, and of course all over the world at the holiday season. I thought it would be nice to do something a little bit different. So、uh, our executive director Brian Ritter、uh, suggested to me this incredible piece that I really hadn't known much about.、Uh, it seems that in 1960, Duke Ellington, a great fan of Tchaikovsky's music, decided to create a record. I think they were called records in those days. A whole record with his Ellington band of his own very distinctive and special arrangements, along with his co-collaborator、uh, Billy Strayhorn,、uh, arrangements or takes. Jazz takes on different movements from the Nutcracker, and he actually made an entire disc's worth, an entire record's worth of music with the band. And it's incredibly creative and and fun and whimsical, and really at the same time a very touching and beautiful homage to the original.、Uh, none of the music strays so far away that we ever forget that these themes he's working with are all Tchaikovsky's, and yet he completely recasts them in a way that makes them totally believable and and gettable as jazz standards. In essence, the record was, I think, a pretty big hit and、uh, much enjoyed. And、uh, so, as a result of that, jazz bands ever after had the great privilege of playing this wonderful. Nutcracker music in an extremely jazz idiomatic version by Ellington and Strayhorn, and、uh, the pieces are so fanciful and, and charming that a, a very gifted orchestral arranger and pops conductor Jeff Tyzak decided to reorchestrate. A number of them, or to orchestrate a number of them for for full orchestra, six movements.、Uh, so, in, in essence, we have Tchaikovsky reimagined by Duke Ellington, and then recast as orchestra music again by Jeff Tyzak, so that we. I guess we used to be called we long hairs, we straight orchestra people can、uh, have a little fun swinging like a big band. So here now are three of the best selections from this amazing set of works that Duke Ellington cast from the Nutcracker. So this is the Ellington slash Tchaikovsky Nutcracker. The first movement we'll play is his version of the Overture.、Uh, the second movement is、uh, the Waltz of the Floriadors, obviously based on the Waltz of the Flowers, but now turned actually into a almost a foxtrotty sort of. Four-four movement, and finally a dazzling piece, the Peanut Butter Brigade, which is based on that wonderful march. Yum, taka da dum, bum 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 ba, lum taka da dum, bum 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 ba. So if you know your Nutcracker at all, and I assume you do, I hope you'll recognize how these themes are really all taken from Tchaikovsky, and yet so transformed that they really sound absolutely like echt. Ellington. So now, three movements、uh, from Duke Ellington's take on the Nutcracker.、Uh, they are played by the Albany Symphony Big Band Orchestra, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. To open the second half of our program, as we continued to build excitement toward the arrival of Josh Bell on stage. We wanted to do one more, a little tribute piece, a, a beautiful, delicate 
modern work. And I'm very proud to say that even though this was a Tchaikovsky gala, uh, mainly Tchaikovsky gala, uh, we managed to sneak in um, a number of more recent pieces, particularly the Ellington and this wonderful piece by Bruce McCombie. This concert was made possible by a very generous gift from one of our very favorite friends and board members at the Albany Symphony, and an, an older gentleman named Heinrich Medicus, who turned 93 years old on December 24th. Heinrich is a retired physics professor from RPI and a great lover of music and a patron of the arts. And we wanted to do a special piece to um, honor Heinrich uh, on the occasion of his 93rd birthday. So we approached Bruce McCombie, a, a very gifted and, and elegant composer who has been had a number of, of careers in music. He's been the dean of the Juilliard School and the, the head of the Boston University uh, Conservatory, uh, as well as a very distinguished composer through his uh, wonderful life. And, and Bruce is a, an old friend of Heinrich's, and we talked to Bruce about the possibility of commissioning a new work in Heinrich's honor. Because of Bruce's very busy commissioning schedule, he wasn't able to find time to create a new work for us in the fairly short time he had between the time we decided to do the concert and the time we actually did the concert. Uh, and so he suggested that we do a piece of his that I had heard before. Uh, it had been recorded by a good friend of mine, Lan Shui, in the Singapore Symphony called Chelsea Tango. And it's a, a very delicate, very charming, very elegant piece, about 11 minutes long, that uh, does exactly what it suggests. It, it takes two tango ideas and weaves a, a very elegant, wistful kind of piece. And uh, it it's inspired actually by by Chelsea in New York City, the neighborhood down in the 20s on the west side, where I actually spent a lot of time because my now wife and then girlfriend lived down there when we lived in New York. In fact, she lived on top of a place where garbage trucks would drive in and out every night between three and six in the morning. And so it was a very not restful place to visit, uh, at least at those hours. Um, but we loved Chelsea, Andrea in particular, my wife. And uh, this piece is an homage to Chelsea where Bruce and his wife also lived for a time. And he was particularly struck by the, the fact that Chelsea was such an incredible melange of cultures and, and uh, different kinds of people from different places. And so he wanted to write a piece that had some Latin influence and also some jazz influence and also uh, a lot of other influences as well. So it's not entirely slow and wistful as tangos often are. Uh, it has a lot of contrast, but it, it is a beautiful, delicate, very gentle piece that we we wanted to send out to our dear friend Heinrich uh, in thanks for all he's done to help us and to support music and art uh, and our community in general. So here now uh, to open the second half, Bruce McCombie's work, Chelsea Tango, played by the Albany Symphony. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. That was Bruce McCombie's uh, piece, Chelsea Tango, played by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. And now to the final work on the program. Uh, this is, of course, the legendary Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto played by the legendary violinist Joshua Bell. Uh, and uh, I must say, I had a lot of fun w working on this piece with Josh. Uh, he came, was only able to come for the one dress rehearsal, and that's always a little bit scary when you only have one rehearsal with an artist. But Josh knows this piece so well, he's played it probably a couple of thousand times. And he and I did have a, a wonderful half hour to sit down. And, and I said to him, as I often do to solos, but particularly to him, because I know he, he's played the piece so frequently, that he must have a lot of very strong views about it and must, frankly, 
hate the way a lot of people do it. And so I said, the first thing I want you to do is, is go through it and tell me what you hate and what you don't want us to do, because we really want to do it the way you feel it should go and the way you need it to go to make you feel comfortable. And I was delighted that, well, he didn't start telling me, I hate this and I hate that, I hate this, but he, he took me through the piece very sequentially, every bit like a conductor. And in a way, I really think you know he's now starting a new job as the, the head of the uh, Academy of St. Martin's in the field, uh, that wonderful chamber orchestra in London. He'll be doing a lot of the leading from the violin, but I think he'll also be doing some straight conducting. And I, I was struck at how conductorial he is in his incredible ability to analyze music and to make really tasteful, beautiful choices. He plays the piece in a very patrician, honest, stylistically uh, echt way. It's, it's very authentic, Tchaikovsky. You know, very often with this piece, it's stretched and, and pulled and uh, soloists really have their way with it, as they do with the Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto as well. And yet Joshua plays it in a way that's just extremely tasteful and of the period. So he led me through the piece and gave me really great insights. I've done the piece a number of times, but certainly not a thousand times or perhaps not even a hundred times, uh, but I know it quite well. And yet, yet he said very uh, insightful things to me. But just before I share them, I should give you a little bit of, of background about the piece. Uh, this is a work that comes right from the middle of Tchaikovsky's output, uh, 1878. That was a very important year in Tchaikovsky's life. It was the year of his fourth symphony. And if you know anything about Tchaikovsky's biography, uh, it was the year of his fateful marriage. Tchaikovsky, of course, was a, a gay man, which was a very difficult thing to be in 1870s uh, Russia in Moscow. Uh, and so it was not something that was talked about or known about generally. And it was something that he felt he had to do something about. So at a certain point, he um, decided to marry. Terrible idea. But it was um, he thought that might help him you know, deal with this uh, challenge he faced. And uh, he sort of uh, almost a little bit arbitrarily uh, selected a young woman who had been a piano student at the conservatory in Moscow where he taught, Anna Milyukova. And uh, went to her and said that I and professed that he could never love her, but he would respect her and would like to be married to her. She had professed great love for him uh, prior to this, even though they hardly knew each other. And uh, he married her. And the marriage lasted about three weeks, uh, at which point he dashed out of the house and tried to drown himself in the, the local river. Fortunately, he was unsuccessful, but kind of went through an entire nervous breakdown and fled to Western Europe, to Switzerland, uh, where he spent a, a good bit of time. And it was uh, after sort of his initial recovery that that he began to fashion the violin concerto with the help of a, a lovely young gentleman who was a friend of his who was visiting him in Switzerland, whose name was Josef Kotek. And Kotek gave him a great deal of insight because, of course, Tchaikovsky was a pianist, not a violinist, and played through the piece and really helped him. Yet at the same time, I think Tchaikovsky, because he wanted to be sure that the piece would be established and have, have a, a life, he dedicated it to the leading violinist in St. Petersburg at the time, who happened to be a German violinist, Leopold Auer was the concertmaster of the St. Petersburg Orchestra at the time. And he sent the manuscript to Auer, who was very touched to receive it and excited. Tchaikovsky was already a very well-known and respected composer. But Auer looked through and played through the piece and essentially declared it unplayable and began to massively revise it. This was particularly difficult because a few years earlier, Tchaikovsky had had a similar experience with uh, with Nicholas Rubinstein, a, a close friend of his who was a great pianist, when he sent him the piano concerto and Rubinstein declared that unplayable. Of course, neither of these works turned out to be unplayable at all. And in fact, 
correct there, two of the great works in the repertoire. Anyway, Auer made extensive revisions, which Tchaikovsky rejected. Auer refused to play it, so the premiere ultimately went to another violinist uh, who premiered the piece a few years later in Vienna, interestingly, uh, with Hans Richter, a great conductor conducting. And it was this premiere of Tchaikovsky's that elicited arguably the most vicious, vituperative review in music history, and there certainly have been a lot of them. This was from the legendary uh, Viennese critic Edward Hanslich, who uh, was a great champion of Brahms and I guess a great hater of anything that didn't sound like Brahms, a great hater of Wagner uh, in the big Brahms-Wagner debate that raged in the 1800s. Hanslich uh, wrote a scathing review, initially starting out kind of nicely, but eventually arriving at the conclusion that an aesthetician has proven that there are paintings for which you can actually see the stench or the stink of them. Well, Mr. Tchaikovsky in his violin concerto, particularly the last movement where you can see the peasants dancing and smell the booze, has written music where you can actually hear the stench. Tchaikovsky was very hurt by this review and was, uh, by all reports, able to quote it until his dying day because he was so offended by it. But uh, as usual, it didn't have much effect on stopping the trajectory of the success of this work, and it was soon being played all over Europe. And actually, an interesting coda to that is that Leopold Auer, the gentleman to whom it had initially been dedicated and who had initially refused to play it, ultimately ended up teaching it to his students. He had an incredible class of students, including Yasha Heifetz and Ephraim Zimbalist and many of the greatest violinists of the next era. All those violinists ended up being great champions of the piece. An hour later in his life kind of recanted and started to play the piece and apologized to Tchaikovsky. But even then, the version that's come down to us from our and his legendary students is um, a version in which many passages in the last movement in particular are cut. So when you hear a Heifetz recording of this piece or a recording, you know, probably 90% or 95% of the recordings available of this piece have these little cuts, maybe adding up to only about four or five minutes of music where Auer felt that it would be an improvement to take out some of the transitional material. But I'm happy to say that Josh is a very strong exponent of believing that uh, one should play the piece in its entirety. So the performance you hear with him is an entire performance without any cuts to any of the movements. Now, now just back to my little discussion with Josh uh, prior to our dress rehearsal. Among the the insights he gave me were some very touching and interesting ones. For example, at the very beginning of the piece, there's this lovely little introduction with just the violins. And that sort of repeats a little step up, and then you suddenly have a real character change where the, the low strings go yum, tum, 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 yum. And he pointed out to me that very often orchestras either change tempo when they get to this more motoric, uh, intense passage, which he really didn't think was right, that you should start the piece fast enough with the introduction so that one doesn't have to make a tempo adjustment where there isn't one written. And two, the upper strings very often don't really make a character change. They don't sort of grab our attention after this lyrical first eight bars and suddenly uh, when the the character changes. So that was a very wonderful insight. The other one that I, I remember distinctly was about the second movement. The second movement is a beautiful, slow, delicate canzona, a song movement, canzonetta. And uh, it begins with just a little woodwind chorale, almost like a little a little hymn tune that then comes back in the middle with the violinist playing around it and then comes back at the end to close um, the second movement. 
And uh, Josh said that he, his feeling was that uh, at the beginning of the second movement, the, the big danger is that the wind section will play too loud. Because when the violin comes in after this beautiful little hymn song, the violin is muted. There's an actual kind of tool that violinists, the string players use that you, you actually stick. It's like a little piece of rubber that you stick over the bridge of the instrument that kind of constrains the sound and gives this wonderfully kind of choked, quiet uh, impression, a, a muted sound for the instruments. And it's, it's often deployed by composers and by, by artists. And, and the violinist and the strings in this slow movement of the Tchaikovsky are asked to play muted. So if the winds play you know, beautifully, expressively in a re- very extrovert fashion, when the violin and the, s- the strings come in, it tends to be uh, rather jarring because the contrast between the winds and the very soft strings is so great. So he suggested to me that one should really try to keep that opening uh, wind uh, chorale very, very hushed as if the winds are playing with mutes. And I thought that was a beautiful insight. There were many, many more insights he gave me. Those two kind of stand out as two really transformational ideas that kind of just suddenly changed the character of the music. So that's one of the excitements of being a conductor and getting to work with many different soloists, especially great soloists, uh, that uh, one can glean uh, fabulous insights from all of them. The second movement leads essentially directly. There's kind of a, a beautiful, wistful, strange section where you feel like the orchestra is searching for the next idea, and then suddenly, blam, the beginning of the third movement happens. Uh, so the piece is in three movements, but the second and third are, in fact, connected to one another. Unfortunately, because of the nature of the way the contract was set up, uh, we're unable to play our actual performance of the Violin Concerto. So we are instead going to play you a, a commercially recorded performance of Joshua playing the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto. Here it is now. The new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live, on WMHT-FM, your classical companion.